danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's Welcome to episode 337 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus, to be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by our guest Ashley Adams, who I believe is also in the Boston area, although I don't think we confirmed that with him. Uh, some of you may know Ashley Adams. Ashley was our guest on episode 265, uh, so about 100, no, not 100 episodes, about two years ago. Uh, Ashley is the host of the House of Cards podcast and radio show. Uh, I actually was a guest on that show back in 2010, so before there even was a Thinking Poker podcast. Uh, he is also the author of Winning No Limit Hold'em, Winning Seven Cards Stud, and the new book, Winning Poker in 30 Minutes, which we will talk to him about. Uh, one of his many poker claims to fame is that he has played poker in all 50 uh, U.S. states, and as we'll talk to him about in this episode, uh, many territories and many foreign countries as well. Uh, so, you know, playing poker in many of the U.S. states is kind of trivial. You just have to go there, and there are legal poker rooms where you can play. But uh, there are states where it's not so trivial, and uh, he talks about that more in our actually in our, our interview in episode 265. Uh, in this interview, we talk some about his uh, quest to play poker in foreign countries and you know, finding home games in uh, Japan and that sort of thing. Uh, um, I think he's just all around a really uh, interesting guy. He's a good storyteller. He, of course, has a knack for radio. He's been doing it for much longer than we have. So uh, just an all around great guest. And I hope that you will enjoy. Our strategy segment, um, I want to address a listener question that I really enjoyed getting because I think it's probably something that a lot of people have wondered about. <clears throat> Um, it relates to some concepts, I mean, grounded in game theory, but I think, you know, I, I know there's, uh, my, my concern when I talk about game theory is always that um, certain people tune out. Like, oh, game theory, that's that stuff for, for high stakes games. You know, this is a concept that I think is, is most commonly misunderstood by players in, in smaller stakes games. The one thing I will say about it, it's it's somewhat more relevant. The, the deeper stacked you are, the more relevant this concept is. So you know when you're playing in a, a one two game with $100 effective stacks, this is not as important of a concept as if you're in a two five game with $1,000 stacks, it's a much more important concept. But I think we have a lot of two five listeners to the show who maybe are not terribly steeped in, in, in game theory and are inclined towards this this line of thinking. Uh, so here's a question from David. David says, uh, I'm recently getting back into poker after a fairly long hiatus of about 10 years, and I happened upon the Thinking Poker podcast. I have to say, the way of thinking about gameplay you use as a perturbation from a game theoretic strategy really cleared up a lot of things I intuitively felt uneasy about, but could not quite put my finger on. The podcast brought me to Play Optimal Poker and Play Optimal Poker 2, and I really enjoyed both, and now I'm on to the Weekend Warrior podcasts. So I wanted to say thank you for putting your work out there in its various forms. 
Well, first off, David, thank you for uh, for the kind words and for consuming that material. Uh, for other people who are interested, everything that David just mentioned there and more is available at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, for paperback versions of Play Optimal Poker, you will want to go to uh, Amazon to get those. That's the only place to get paperback, but electronic versions are available on Kindle or on nitcast.com. Anyway, on to David's question. Uh, David says, I had a question about a topic that comes up somewhat often in your strategy sessions. You often say something to the effect of, if your opponent has a flush draw or open-ended straight draw, they're going to call anyway, and I just wanted to clarify what you mean there. I think you often say that in the context of betting for protection because players worry about whether they should bet to protect against those types of hands. The thing I found slightly confusing uh, is that it seems like the conclusion is that there is no benefit from betting into these hands, or that it's always correct for the flush draw to call. On the former point, even if it is actually correct for the flush draw to call, betting something is still better than betting nothing for the made hand. A check just gives the draw their equity in the pot, whereas a big bet gets some additional value from the made hand's equity, even if the draw's calls are still plus EV for them. On the latter point, if Villain knew you had the flush draw and their strategy was to check fold if the flush hit on the turn and go all in for more than a uh, one-third pot size bet if it didn't, then you'd have to fold if your flush didn't come on on the turn since you're not getting the 1-4 to four odds you need on your 20% to hit the draw on the river. The flush hitting would then be worth pot plus the flop bet, uh, and the, miss, uh, the flush missing would be uh, worth uh, negative the flop bet, right? You, you lose the, the amount of the bet. Um, I think if Villain bet at least one-third pot on the flop and they followed that strategy on the turn, then you shouldn't call. Obviously, this is a toy example, and players won't know enough about your hand to make this play uh, that gives you zero implied odds, but one-third pot is also not that big of a bet on the flop and turn. For the above reasons, it does not seem quite that straightforward whether to call significant bets when I'm on a strong draw like this. If you're able to be the aggressor and get some fold equity, then that helps, but if someone's leading into you with sizable bets, I don't have that great a model for what size bet makes sense to call with, uh, whereas how it's sometimes discussed on the podcast often makes it seem like this is just an obvious call, almost regardless of the bet size. I'm guessing that's not what you intend there, but I just wanted to check if there's something I'm missing. Thanks in advance for any guidance, and looking forward to your future podcasts. So that might have gotten a little confusing in the middle. It's probably easier to read than it is to hear uh, out loud. But essentially, the question is, you know, and he's right that I, you know, I, I do tend to say or imply that it's generally correct to call bets on the flop with a flush draw or straight draw, regardless of the size of the bet. In fact, even gut shots um, are rarely folding to flop bets. And um, I also tend to make the argument that there's not much value or that it's, you know, the, the presence of draws on the board shouldn't really be driving your decision to bet if you have a, um, you know, a hand like top pair yourself. There might be other reasons to bet, but I do think it's true that um, most people overestimate how much it's worth to them to bet into a draw. And they tend to think, oh, there's draws on the board. I have to bet. And I think, in fact, the, the draws on the board, like sometimes betting into a draw can actually be negative EV. Um, and so I want to explain why that is. Essentially, the argument that uh, our correspondent David is is making here, he's imagining a scenario where one player has a strong made hand and the other player has a bare flush draw. In other words, they have a flush draw with exactly nine outs. Um, you know, we're not factoring in any kind of backdoor equity. We're not factoring in the possibility of uh, the flush draw having live pair outs. We're not factoring in the possibility of the flush draw having fold equity on, on later streets. We're just kind of assuming, you know, one player has 
you know, the, the effectively like the current nuts or some, you know, very strong currently made hand. Another player is drawing to a hand that if he hits those nine outs, he'll be good. And then the question is, you know, why wouldn't we want to bet into that hand? Uh, if you knew all those things, <laughs> if you knew for sure that your opponent had a flush draw and you knew for sure that your hand was good if the flush draw didn't get there, then yes, you would want to bet. And it could easily be incorrect for him to call um, in, in that kind of a scenario. The point is that doesn't really arise in, in real game conditions. Uh, ranges are always much wider than that. So when a player finds themselves holding a flush draw on the flop and they're facing a bet, it is not often the case that you can just say, um, oh, you know, clearly that player has top pair and the only way I can win this pot is by hitting one of nine outs. Right? That is not often the case. I suppose sometimes when you're playing with a certain sort of very straightforward player, you know, you can be sure just from their flop bet that they have a pair. And, um, yeah, I mean, maybe in those situations you can kind of exploitatively just fold if you have, you know, if they've made a very large bet and you have a draw and you're expecting that they're going to bet again the next trade if your draw doesn't get there and maybe they will, you know, check and fold if your draw does get there. I mean, you can construct scenarios where it would be construct correct to fold a flush draw. Um, all of them hinge on the knowledge that your opponent already has a very strong made hand. And in theory and generally in practice, you're just not going to have that information. So when when uh, you call with a flush draw on the flop, or when, you know, when, when any player calls with a flush draw on the flop, they're banking on a number of things besides just the draw getting there. I mean, we tend to present pot odds. Like, I mean, if you read a, a kind of very simplistic... Uh, poker book like an introductory sort of poker book the way they teach pot odds is just okay well you know you can count the number of outs you have and a flush has nine outs and then you look at the odds that the bet is offering you and you can compare you know your your number of outs you have and translate that into equity and think about your equity compared to the pot odds uh, i mean i think that kind of thing kind of makes sense in limit hold'em where um there's not a lot of fold equity, you know, like you're not generally like bluffing people off of hands um, so much as just like trying to, to get there maybe. Um, but I think in, in no limit, immediate pot odds, just I mean, no limit just is not about comparing your equity to your immediate pot odds, except in all in type situations, which again, you know, that is something that, that David stipulates in his example is like, well, you know, if it's all in on the turn and the bet is only such and such, you know, you're not going to be able to call. And again, yeah, that, that may be true, but that's not the more common situation. The more common situation is that you're facing a bet on the flop and there's still going to be significant poker to be played on later streets. And that's where a lot of the value of calling with the flush draw comes from, and that's why it's not terribly valuable to bet into the flush draw. Because when you do have hand like, you know, a top pair or even an over pair or something, and I mean, let's, let's, let's suppose, we'll make it a little bit more concrete. Let's suppose you have pocket queens and the flop is jack nine, five, two tone, right? Jack nine, five with two clubs. Um, there is not a lot of value, like, if you're out of position with the queens and you don't know what your opponent has, right? So, I mean, the, the, the players in the game don't know their opponent's hand, but you and I, um, for, as, as people who are not participating in the game, we do know their hands. So the out of position player has queens, the in position player has ace five of clubs, right? No, jack nine, five with two clubs. Um, the Queens is, I believe, a small equity favorite in this situation. Um, that might not even be, be true because we gave him such a strong draw. We could weaken the draw. We could say he has like 
six, seven of clubs for a gut shot and a flush draw. Um, you know, the, the, the Queens is going to be a small equity favorite in this situation, but I think that the player with seven, six of clubs actually has more EV. Uh, and that's because the seven, six of clubs is going to be a much more playable hand on later streets. With pocket queens, there are going to be quite a few turn cards where if, after you bet the flop and get called, your hand is going to be very difficult to play on the turn. Right? You bet and you get called, the turn is an ace, the turn is a king, the turn is a ten, the turn is an eight, <laughs> the turn pairs the jack or the nine, the turn is a club. Um, there are tons of turn cards where your hand is going to become a good deal more difficult to play. And the player holding the flush draw, especially if they're in possession, but even if they're not, um, the player holding the draw is going to have the advantage essentially of having a polarized range. Right? So if, if you are familiar with the concepts from play optimal poker or just in general familiar with the concepts of you know polarized range versus a condensed range, you know that a polarized range has the advantage. Being able to know definitively that you do or do not have the best hand enables you to make better decisions than a player who you know doesn't really know or you know, has a hand that is like that is just a bluff catcher it has a hand that, that, that beats bluffs but loses the value bets so the problem is you know the, the the six five of clubs can bluff with it miss when it misses and value bet when it gets there and the player with the queens doesn't know which is which it doesn't know which cards are good for his opponent. doesn't know which cards are bad for his opponent. Because the opponent, there's, he's playing against a range of draws. Right? There, there are, even if he knew for sure that his opponent had a draw, which you, know, you also often don't know. Like, I mean, there's also a chance the opponent has two pairs, the opponent has a set, the opponent has a made straight. But you know, even if he knows for sure that the opponent uh, you know, flopped a draw, he doesn't know which draw it is. And that makes it difficult to play on later streets. Because you know, whatever draw the opponent has, they can value bet when their draw actually gets there and they can bluff when other draws get there and just generally make life very dis very miserable for the player with the medium strength hand. Uh, so it's definitely not the case that you know just because you have an equity advantage, you therefore have an EV advantage or that it benefits you to put money in the pot. You have to consider, am I gonna benefit from the later street betting? And I think you know, people lose sight of this concept on the flop Preflop, I think people are very familiar with this concept. You know, I think many people understand that you're facing uh, the, the button opens for twenty dollars and you're holding king eight offsuit in the big blind. Now the button might be you know maybe you think the button's going to raise forty percent of hands in this situation. And your king eight has you know good enough equity. If if you if it were, this were just an all in bet for twenty dollars and your opponent had forty percent of the deck, you'd fairly happily call with king eight offsuit. But um, but if it's not all in, if there's still a lot of money behind and you're going to have to play king eight after the flop, the best play is probably just to fold preflop. And that's because king eight is a difficult hand to play after the flop. Why? Because it turns into marginal hands. It doesn't turn into nutty hands. It doesn't turn in even to especially good bluffing hands. Right? There's not a lot of strong draws you're going to flop with king eight. Every once in a while you can make a king high flush draw, but that's about it. You're not... Um, you're not going to make a lot of strong made hands. I mean, you make top pair, you're kind of just have a bluff catcher. Certainly, if you make a pair of eights, you're just going to have a bluff catcher. Sometimes, even making two pair, you still might not have a hand that's really nutty enough to play for stacks, depending on the board. There's just not a lot of good that comes from playing king eight. King eight preflop doesn't turn into the kind of hand that you want to hold after the flop. And pocket queens on a jack nine five two tone board is not going to be the kind of hand that you want to be holding on later streets. 
I mean, not so much, especially not when you make the pot larger. So the larger you make the pot, the stronger your opponent's range is going to be, and um, the harder your hand is going to be able to, to play on later streets. Now, there might be other reasons to bet queens. I mean, you might there might be some ways in which you are benefiting from fold equity. Like if your opponent is holding ace five of spades, you're kind of interested in making them fold the ace, or you know, you're interested in betting to get called by like jack eight. I mean, there are some hands that queens is a big favorite against. So I'm not saying that you know you necessarily shouldn't bet queens on jack nine five, but the the major reason to bet is not, oh, there are draws on the board, therefore I need to bet to charge the draws. Right? You're not making a lot of money betting into draws. I think what happens is people People focus too much on whether they currently have the best hand, right? Poker is not about currently having the best hand. Poker is about being able to make good decisions and especially being able to make good decisions when the pot is large. And so the problem with queens on, you know, on, on that kind of flop and the problem with king eight offsuit preflop is that even though their equity may be good, their ability to make decisions on later streets is not so good. Um, particularly not against certain certain kinds of ranges. So you know, if if you are making money by betting queens on the jack nine five two tone, it's because you're getting called by stuff like jack ten, not because you're getting called by stuff like ten eight. You're really not making money from those draws because even if they are giving up a little bit of equity on the flop, they're making up for it with superior play on the turn and river. And I don't mean superior play in the sense of, you know, you're bad at poker and your opponent is good at poker. It's, it's nothing to do with the comparative skill of the players. It's just the nature of the hands. Um, some hands outperform their equity on later streets, and some hands underperform their equity. Like the hands that overperform their equity are uh, hands that can bet as part of a polarized range, hands that will be either very strong or very weak on later streets. Very strong hands overperform their equity by value betting. When you flop top set, your EV is usually greater than the size of the pot, meaning that you expect to win the entire pot plus additional bets. So that's an example of a hand overperforming its equity. Its equity is probably like, you know, maybe 95% of the pot or something is your equity when you flop top set, but your EV might end up being, you know, 300% of the pot. Um... Other, you know, uh, uh, draws also tend to overperform their equity even when they miss. And the reason they overperform their equity when they miss is not because they have really high EV, but because they have very low equity. Right? So when when six seven of clubs checks and calls, the, you know, the flop and then you know it bricks the turn and river, its equity on the river is zero. So if it makes any money at all by bluffing, it has overperformed its equity. Right? If it ever win, you know, if if it has an EV of one percent of the pot by bluffing. Well, that's better than the 0% of the pot that it would get if there were no betting at all, right? If, if it just had to take its equity, its equity would be zero. So it's easy for a weak hand to overperform its equity because weak hands don't have good equity. The hands that underperform their equity are marginal hands, are bluff catchery kinds of hands. They're the sorts of hands that are most likely to make mistakes. When they're faced with bets from polarized ranges, they either call and lose to value bets or fold and lose the bluffs. Unless you have some kind of very good physical read on your opponent, your opponent has some kind of blatant bet sizing tell or something, there's no way to avoid doing those things. Once you end up in that spot, all you can do is try to make the best of a bad situation. And a lot of big bet poker, and this is a big part of what Play Optimal Poker 2 is about, a lot of big bet poker is about not ending up in these situations in the first place. 
not getting into spots where the pot is large and you have a hand that's difficult to play. And I think too often people, the, the way that people try to avoid those situations is, I'm just going to make big bets on the flop and hope my opponent goes away. And when the opponent doesn't go away, they've put themselves in very bad spots for later streets. They strengthen their opponent's range to the point where their own hand is either already not that strong or is not going to be very strong on, on many turns. And once you're at the point where you're saying the majority of turn cards is bad for me, you don't really have a value hand anymore. I mean, what does that mean to say, you know, I, I, have, I have a strong hand, but most turn cards are bad for me? What, you know, how can that be true? If, if most turn cards are bad for you, your hand isn't really that strong. So I think that's, that's the better way to think. I, th- I think people are, are too obsessed with the idea of um, not wanting to get drawn out on or wanting to make sure that they win the pot when they have the best hand. Um, and I think that thinking in terms of setting yourself up for profitable situations on later streets is what a lot of big bet poker is really about. It's not about what do you have now. It's about what are you going to have on the turn in river, especially when the pot is large. So thanks, David, for that excellent question. Uh, again, for people who are interested in uh, any of the products that David inter- David uh, mentioned, playing Play Optimal Poker, Play Optimal Poker 2, the Weekend Warrior podcast, uh, also the brand new strategy video with Carlos Welch. Um, for those of you who did not listen to last week's episode, really highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, did a full strategy segment with Carlos Welch, who... I don't know how many people are listening to this and won't know who he is, but Carlos is uh, arguably the very best guest we've ever had on this show, and uh, last week's was one of the very best shows that we've done with him, and we've done, uh, I think, well over 10 shows with with Carlos, and I think this most recent one was one of the best, uh, both from a strategy perspective and some of the conversation that we had towards the end. Um, So I do encourage you to go back and listen to that, but... Carlos and I uh, have a new strategy video out. It's about six hours of content, um, and it's about exploiting small stakes tournaments. It's really Carlos coaching me, right? Uh, it's Carlos saying like, "Oh, you're too tied up in all this, you know, fancy game theory stuff. You know, here are some of the ways that you can just take advantage of people who are bad at poker." Um, it's just it's a lot of fun to watch. There's a lot of good content in there, and that also is available at knitcast.com. Thanks for uh, listening to the strategy segment. Thanks for listening to the show. And now please enjoy our interview with Ashley Adams. So welcome back to the show, Ashley. It's good to have you again. Good to hear your voice. Nice to be here. Uh, so I imagine you have not had a chance to uh, hit any new states since uh, COVID started. There are no new states. Oh, you I, did hit them. I, I, for some reason, I thought there were one or two you hadn't gotten to yet. So you've, you've well, played maybe, poker in all 50 states. It may be the last time we talked that I hadn't, but as of 2017, I've played in all 50 states in... I've played in a few new countries. I've played in 25 different nations and uh, a couple of U.S. territories. So I was, I was about to ask if you'd played in Puerto Rico or, or where have you played? I've been to the poker rooms in Puerto Rico, but they did not have any games when I was there. But the most notable place I've ever played poker and one of the most exciting games, I should say scary games, 
was in the little known populated U.S. territory of the Northern Mariana Islands. Have you Mm -hmm. heard of that? I was reading about this once. I had an acquaintance who was studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test, and you learn something about, like... <laughs> That's about where the only place you read about it. Yeah, or, like, well, no, the aftermath of World War II. That's, like, yeah. I mean, which which is closely related. I think a lot of those things came to be territories or have, like, complicated protectorate relationships to the U.S. for Very historical good. reasons. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, in fact, the Northern Mariana Islands were the staging area for the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. They were Japanese-controlled. The U.S. took them over in a number of different battles and then used them from which to stage the atomic, the horrible atomic bombing. And uh, they became U.S. territories. Now they are they're very close to Guam. They're almost entirely owned, the property on them, by Chinese. So, in fact, the Chinese went on a buying spree, and property values are enormously escalated, inflated from what they were just 10 years ago. And one of the major construction projects by a Chinese firm was the Imperial Palace Casino, which rises like a, um, a monolith. It, it's bizarre that the island is moderately poor, working class, uh, small houses, uh, largely stucco, wood, uh, single two-story houses. And then there's the Imperial Palace Casino that is like this uh, Las Vegas or even like Foxwoods, this huge, beautiful, shiny white and gold uh, structure. And it was built to service uh, big-time gamblers, whales from China, flying down when Macau would be too cold. You know, Macau is this huge gambling place in, uh, on the Chinese mainland across the strait from Hong Kong. And it had served as the outlet for whales uh, gambling. But it was not warm. It was not tropical. So... This became the tropical lease. Unfortunately, the construction company didn't quite do the job. And they built the casino, but they didn't build the hotel. And it did not attract the people they thought it would. But for a brief shining period, it had the wildest, most insane 2-5 game. It happened that I was there when this was going on. And I'm not a... I'm not a big gambler. I'm a very mod, a one, two, one, three, maybe a modest two, five player if it's a relatively tightly controlled game. But I sat into a two, five game where my heart was in my mouth and had <laughs> the most electrifying three hour session. Uh, I, I, it, how wild was it? You might ask. I was one of three non-Chinese players. There was a German guy and a guy from the Middle East, I think Saudi Arabia, where they don't allow any gambling legally. Uh, And we were sitting there and guys would, it would go like this, pre-flop, $2 small blind, $5 uh, big blind, fold, blind shove to 100, call, call, laugh, shove for $1,000, call, call, 
to me. Now, <laughs> what range do you play in a game? Yeah, like they say it's suited, maybe. <laughs> so it was a wonderful, it turned out to be wonderful because I did not get unlucky and won the largest pot of my life, which was about $7,500, uh, which for me is an enormous pot. Some That's an enormous say, pot oh, for any 2-5 game. Well, for a 2-5 game, right. So uh, I'm thinking what a great player I am. I, I leave shortly thereafter up many thousands of dollars. And as I'm cashing in my chips, the wild, crazy gambler showed me how insignificant the stakes were to him. He had lost his stack of 10,000, and he was breaking down one of seven or eight placards that he had that he needed to break down. And the placards, I'm not exaggerating, were $100,000 placards. <laughs> uh, and he had, he had pulled the stack out of his pocket and said, I need to break this down into $1,500 chips, please, sir. So <laughs> put everything in perspective. Yeah, a million dollars casually in the pocket. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He, you know, walked away with a few racks of orange and uh, and five hundred dollar chips. So anyway, that was my experience in the uh, Mariana Islands, the island of Saipan. <laughs> did, did you? I I I got really into your story there. Did you say why you were there? Why, why were you there? I ah well, they, like a lot of things, there is a story. My wife teaches something called the Alexander Technique. Do either of you know what that is? I'm no, disappointed to say no. Okay, I'll I'll just tell you quickly. It's a it's a method of easeful movement. She trains people how to unlearn bad habits of movement and posture and relearn a more easeful way of doing whatever they do. It's especially useful for musicians, for actors, but also anybody who sits in front of a keyboard, like a poker player. Uh, and might end up with neck pain or back pain or leg pain, she will show them how their habit of sitting, how they sit, how they keyboard, how they get up, is hurting them. And she will work with them to inhibit their habitual way of doing whatever they do and learn a more easeful way. So she is a world-class teacher of this, is known everywhere. And in Japan, there are schools of this that invite her over to give master classes. And so we go over to Japan just about every year for the last seven or eight years. And uh, this is going to sound absurd, but we go to Tokyo. And then I, I find after about a week, we go for two or three weeks, I've got to play some poker. And poker is illegal. While I've located an underground game, it's ridiculously raped. So I typically go on a vacation from this vacation. And... <laughs> And this year, which was actually two years ago, I went to Saipan for the tropical climate, the beaches, and, of course, the poker. I've also gone to the Philippines. Manila has a good poker scene. South Korea has poker. Macau has poker. So I've gone to those places, and I've gone to Okinawa in Japan that, unlike Tokyo, they're looser with the laws, and I've played there. I've gone to Taiwan. So that's what I do when my wife is diligently doing her teaching i'm out playing poker at whatever place i can find that i can fly to and return uh to tokyo in less than a week how's the poker in palau you know i've read online that they have some casinos but i have never been to palau have you no <laughs> but um, i've never been to any of those micronesia 
of nations like the Marshall Islands or the Solomon Islands. But as a serious matter, I have my eye on New Zealand and Australia, where they have a pretty active poker scene, though the rake is sick. And uh, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and of course, Singapore have casinos with poker. Uh, and I'd like to see what they're like. How do you go about, I mean, I think we, we talked about this in the context of, you know, finding an underground game in, um, maybe it was it was Wyoming, but it feels like an entirely different challenge when you're in a country, uh, I mean, I, I, even if you speak some Japanese, I'm sure you don't speak the local language in, in every single one of those countries you named. Um, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a white tourist, how do you go about finding uh, the, an, an underground poker game in, uh, well, in some of those countries? It's much less creative overseas than it is in the United States. You know, in the United States, I use all my different identities to try connect, find connections. Uh, I'm an elk. I'm a Jew. And I go, call in the United States, you know, I call synagogues. I call elk lodges and the like. But in foreign countries, that stuff doesn't have much parlance. So I'm relying on more conventional ways. First of all, I look for countries that have legal public poker rooms. And then it's easy. You know, you go to South Korea, you go online. You find the uh, the seven lucky casino um, and you go to it. And of course, there's in just about every country, you know, we Americans have it too easy. Everybody in the entertainment or hospitality business speaks English. So you get to sit down, you get to play, you learn the word for raise, you learn the word for fold, you don't <laughs> even write. And that's about all you need to know. Um, but in some of these places like Taiwan and Okinawa, uh, it, there is no legal public poker, so you have to be a little more creative. You go online. Typically, there's a Facebook group, and the Facebook site does have some English interface, and that's what I did in Taiwan. I found out about this. You know, it seems ridiculously uh, convoluted, but you cannot play for cash in Taiwan. You can only play tournaments, but being clever as we are poker players, they have obfuscated the law against cash by having essentially tournaments that are not time limited that you can buy into and cash out of in tournament chips. <laughs> and you can sell your tournament chips to players who are allowed to surreptitiously give you cash for your tournament chips. And of course, I didn't know that this was also part of it. When you sell your tournament chips for cash, the players extract a price from you of about 10%. So you're paying a 10% seller's rake in order to cash out. It's a little bit convoluted, but that's how they get around it. Huh. Uh, in Okinawa, I found a private game by going to the Facebook page. They camouflage it a little bit. I forget how. They invite. They say it's a free game. Uh, ha, ha, ha. And then I went there, and it was just a regular one-two game. Unfortunately... They are very circumspect, not about letting people in for the first time, but if you are a winning player, uh, typically none of the Japanese players that come are winning players. The two guys from the U.S. Army base are, and as an American and as somebody who is obviously a winning player, which they sized up, I don't know how they figured it out, except that I won some money and I played more tightly than the Japanese people, they did not invite me to any more games and you have to be invited and told where the floating location is but getting an initial game you just go on facebook um, in the philippines in manila there are half a dozen public poker rooms and they're all great they're not raked heavy they were raked i think four dollar or five dollar max they're publicly available they 
they have kind of irregular hours sometime. I went on New Year's Eve, the day of New Year's Eve, and go figure, they closed at noon. I got there at one o'clock in the afternoon, figuring I'll play and they'll be up open all night, uh, but they closed at noon. You have to just check the hours to make sure. So that's what it's like playing there. If I were to go to a place that poker was illegal, like Tokyo, I wouldn't know where to go. It turns out I had a friend in Tokyo and he ran an underground game, but it was tough to win because he charges people a third of their buy-in. So if I buy in for $300, I get $200 worth of chips. Uh, They don't rake the pot. There's no money in the game, but that's a pretty steep rake you know yeah I, I should hope they're not raking the pot on top of that <laughs> you know but interesting some of my my skillful players said you know if they're not raking the pot and you pay one third up front oh and then you also if you rebuy you got to pay a third on any rebuy but you do that after the game's over they keep track and you settle outside of where the game is because if you're caught gambling for money which i think is gambling means for money but if you're caught gambling The penalties there are so severe. He said that if he's caught running a room, first offense is something like $100,000, not 100,000 yen, $100,000 fine and a year in jail. And the second time, it's like five years in jail. It's something insane. So he has to be really careful that there's no money up front anywhere near the game. I paid a third, but my friend said, if you win and you don't have to rebuy and there's no rake, that may not be horrible. I thought it was horrible. So what do you think? I'm wondering if you're allowed to buy buy in for like 10 big blinds or something. That's, uh... If you bought in for 10 big blinds, they would rake a third of it, not just $100. So, uh, oh, you mean buy in short? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you have to buy in for a minimum. Uh, it was a one-two game. I mean, it was equivalent of one-two, and you had to buy in for at least a uh, hundred big blinds or 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 three hundred or a hundred. No, a hundred or a hundred and fifty big blinds was a minimum. Yeah, I mean, what I think is that I would never ever play such a game for a lot of reasons. One of which is that the opportunity cost is high because uh, I really want to visit Tokyo, and I've never been, and it's one of the world's great cities, and and I hear. Uh, you know, that old thing that Samuel Johnson said about London, that a man who is tired of it is tired of life. I, I, I think <laughs> that, it, that could also be said of Tokyo. And so much as I love poker with all uh, not only because all those challenges to actually winning are so high and to staying out of jail, for that matter. But um, um, because, like, I mean, come on, you're in Tokyo. Like, there's no lack of amazing, amazing, amazing stuff to do. So that's what I think. That's true, and I would agree with you unless if you were in Tokyo seven times for three weeks over seven years, I think even you would want to play poker one night out of those many, many, many nights. I certainly would. Yeah. I'm also remembering what you said. I, again, I think this might have been in the context of Wyoming, but I mean, you're going to meet people who you would not otherwise meet by playing right. in that in that poker game. That's right. Incredible opportunities are opened up for you when you engage in an activity like poker in a foreign land. Uh, I met a guy 
who turned me on to bicycle racing. Now, we all, I mean, I know we all, I love to bike and I've watched the Olympics and I've seen the pursuit races that they have. Well, Japan, with its ridiculous convoluted anti-gambling laws, has some exceptions. One of the exceptions is they allow wagering, paramutual rate wagering on bicycle races, like the Olympic bicycle races. So my wife and I, I met this guy, he told me about them, and my wife and I took a a train and then a bus to this, from our perspective in downtown Tokyo, this obscure outlying bike track that had full scale, wonderful scene of almost all senior citizens, like in the U.S., horse racing in the U.S. is pretty much populated by people with gray hair. Well, in, in Japan, in Tokyo, similarly, the bike race scene almost all either retiree types or real down and out gambling addicts finding the one place. So we, I would never have known about that if I hadn't been playing poker with this guy. Also, by the way, as an aside, they also allow motorboat races and you have, (laughs) this is bizarre. All around the city are these like OTB. I don't know if you know, New York state has off track betting and now we have simulcast everywhere. They have these little parlors where you can walk in, watch a screen that shows 10 or 15 different boat races going on around the country, and you can gamble by betting on which boat's going to win. Um, of course, everything's in Japanese, and the guys that are sitting in there really look like degenerate gamblers. It's kind of pathetic. But as a tourist, what an interesting slice of life to see. And I found out about that by playing poker with these guys. Um, so anyway, it was fun. I, I just thought of something else. There is a great show. If you're interested in Japan, you got to watch this show. My wife and I have uh, been uh, binge watching it until we watched all of them. It's called Midnight Diner. And it is a half an hour drama, kind of a, uh, a little bit of humor, a little bit of poignant uh, scenes of a diner in Tokyo that opens at midnight, closes at 7 a.m., and uh, it's with English subtitles, but it shows the city constantly. And if you're interested in Tokyo, it's a great way to enter into that world without actually flying over a uh, 14-hour flight. And I recommend it highly, called Midnight Diner. And then they made a, uh, a more recent version of it called Midnight Diner uh, Tokyo Story. And I recommend it highly. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, and did did you say uh, where one? I mean, is that like on on Netflix, or Netflix. how would one go about finding that? Okay, cool. on Netflix, and uh, yeah, we just <laughs> kind of uh, tuned into it. It's got they've got like uh, five seasons, I think, and maybe eighteen or so shows a season. So it's something you can watch. Uh, you know, it's like maybe a total of fifty episodes, something like yeah, that. Keep you busy for a while. Yeah. So as, as a man who can't go three weeks in Tokyo without playing poker, uh, how did you survive the pandemic? Well, how have I you survived really it thus far? I refuse to play in person, except for one exception I'll tell you about later. But um, I have been very fortunate in that I got some poker buddies from a home game to set up a game on Poker Stars, a private club. And we've we scheduled at the beginning of the pandemic. And in fact, there are two such groups that I am part of uh, nightly 
anywhere from ten to a hundred dollar buy-in tournaments. And in fact, we even scheduled some cash games that did not work out that well because uh, Poker Stars rakes the game, and even though you, you do it all for play money, and then you settle up at the end for real money, but it's hard to figure out how to settle up with a rake coming off. It's not a real rake, right? It's just a rake of three chips, but they do it to simulate what the real games are like. But when you're playing live, it's just hard. So we just do tournaments, which are very easy to figure out. We set our own buy-ins. We set our own prize pool amounts. And I did that every single night, except Friday night, because I never play on Friday night. It's my Sabbath with my wife. But I did that for months and uh, would have would do it now, except I blew my eye out, my right eye. Uh, I got retina detachment and looking at a computer screen for very long is bad until my eye heals, which won't be until November. And uh, so that's what I've been doing. What have you guys been doing? I, I'm a software engineer, so I've been mostly working and I have a three year old. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm a software engineer with a three year old. So, you know. That that's what I've been doing. <laughs> I got you. You're a parent. Yes. There's no daycare available. So you haven't played any poker at all? Uh, I've played Heads Up, Play Money, Pot Limit Omaha, Eight or Better, and it's been delightful. Play uh, money but, without but, any any side wagering for real money. Good. Hey, good yeah. for you, man. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. And and that's 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 been that's been my poker. That's been my poker. What about you, Andrew? Uh, I've played some tournaments on America's Card Room. Um, I played a very little bit of cash on America's Card Room, but um, yeah, just like the, the kind of U.S. facing sites, and even that I actually didn't get into. Um, and actually, I guess this is this is something maybe you were doing as well. Actually, um, I was writing a book for the first few months of the uh, of the pandemic. The book came out in May, so um, the, the first couple of months I was uh, that was most of my time was going into that, and I really didn't even touch ACR until after I had um, uh. until after I had finished the book. Who's your publisher? Uh, Andrew Brokus, me. Oh, you self-published. Good for you. Yeah, Amazon has made it extremely easy. Yes, so I have found. Um, I I stayed with a conventional publisher just because they they offered me a little money up front, and I didn't want to bother with any of the, the stuff about publishing yourself. But it's not hard. My brother just published a book of mine on, on union stuff. Uh, it's very easy, and you distribute it on Amazon, and that's pretty much where people are selling their books anyway. Very little bookstores, even before coronavirus. I mean, there's Barnes and Noble, but uh, poker books sell best online and as audio books or podcast stuff. Um, so you're right. That may be the next one I write. We'll we'll do privately. And who is your publisher? D and B. You know okay. they, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, sure, yeah. they're very good. I really like Byron and Dan. Uh, they're good guys. Uh, they're honest, and I think they're fair. And they also they have the benefit of a, a wonderful editor who, you know, you, you can edit your own stuff, but I have found having a professional editor, which I've had in two out of my four, well, actually three, because my brother is a professional editor, it makes a big difference to me, my writing style, also helping me organize the book. Uh, it really helps to have a professional set of eyes, I found, to work with me on uh, putting it together, uh, editing the stuff that I thought was well written. And by God, you know, there's a reason they're a professional editor. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. it up. So I, 
I, I wrote uh, Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day, and I don't want to spend much time hyping it, but I do want people to know that I did write this book for players that are you know, enthusiastic, but they, I found there are a lot of players who play live, play online, they don't win, they lose. And in fact, those are the ones you look for when you're playing. Um, and I thought a lot of the books out there, Andrew, and I haven't read yours, but I have read a lot. I have an enormous library because I, for House of Cards, everybody sends me books. Uh, most are written for people that are trying to go from good to great, if I were to characterize them. They're good uh, that, that is very much the, the realm that my book is in. Yeah, and there's something to be said for that, but I wanted to address a lot of the players that are mediocre or worse. Bad, which I think is the largest part of the poker universe, are oh, mediocre sure. and bad players. So I wrote Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day, and they chose the title. But it's not a beginner's book. It's for people that know how to play, but they don't know how to win. And uh, I wanted to teach people at least enough to make a good hobby, not a losing hobby, at least break even or you win a little bit. And then maybe you get good at it. You can get a book that can make you a great player. That's what it's for. What's the, what's the yeah, I mean, what, what's the sort of general, I mean, is it literally set up to have like, you know, here's the, here's what you do with the 30 minutes the first day. Here's what you do with 30 minutes the second day. Is, is that no, kind of the, the structure of the book or no, what's that? It's not, it's not nearly as mechanical and prescriptive as that. It basically takes people from, finding a good game. It gives people exercises that they can do in 30 minutes a day. Now it doesn't say how many days, because presumably any book you can break down into 30 minutes a day. If you want to spend 30 years, uh, <laughs> right. Right? You, you know, but the, the idea is to give lessons. And I have, I think it's about 10 chapters. Uh, and each one has lessons that you can do in 30 minutes a day. I don't promise 30 minutes a day for a week will make you a good player. But if you work at it for a month, a month and a half, you can become competent enough. And I, I take, you know, bite-sized pieces on uh, finding a good game, um, how to track your play, uh, outs and odds, um, playing the flop, uh, a tight and aggressive strategy, how to read other players, how to tailor your game to take advantage of mistakes that other people make, how to get better when you're already okay, like that. Um, and I give people other resources, and then there's quizzes and stuff to help somebody who knows the basic stuff but really needs some discipline and some hard facts. You know, People throw around a lot of terms. I don't assume that they know what range is, so I teach them about ranges and how to figure out your own range and position uh, and stuff like that. And I know you're not yourself a, a professional educator, but you've worked with professional educators for a long time. Um, are there things that you learned about teaching that, you know, that, that you were actively putting into the book in terms of, you know, this is uh, this is how a teacher would, would teach? That's, that's a very good question. And you, you're right. I am not a teacher uh, in the sense that I don't teach classes. I've never been a classroom teacher. But as a poker coach and as a poker writer and then as a union organizer, a lot of what I do is teaching, uh, teaching other people how to do things, uh, even if it's not in the context of a classroom. 
I would say that I, it, I never really thought about that connection until you just asked me. I tried to be simple and methodical in the steps that I teach people, like what do you need to know first, what do you need to know second, in the platforms, uh, or what do they call that, and you stage things? Scaffolding. Um, scaffolding, that's the term. So I would scaffold information so that you would build on what you've already done on the first floor and the second floor. But I never thought, how would a classroom teacher teach this subject? That's very interesting, and I, I hadn't thought about that before. So what, what should someone do first? I mean, if, if and this is a question that I get sometimes when, when you know, people like, uh, I don't know, a, a hairstylist or someone, you know, ask, you know, what do you do for a living? They're like, okay, well, how do I get good at poker? Like what, you know, someone who has you know, really very little, back, I know that's not quite the target audience of your book, but, you know, if, if someone is asking you for uh, not even 30 minutes, I mean, you've got uh, an right. elevator pitch on how do okay. I get better at poker? Very What's good. The, I like that question. To me, if you already know the game, I'm not talking about teaching somebody the rudiments of how to play or how the game is structured. Or the yeah, I mean, I assume they know that a flush beats a straight. Right. If you're a player comfortable sitting down in a casino game already, but you want to start learning how to win, the very first thing I talk about is game selection. And I think it's what makes this book so different from a lot of others and what makes me different from a lot of other people. To me... The mechanics of you know, the next step, which is learning about hand selection and being disciplined and playing tightly, that comes second. Because first, you've got to find turf that you can win in. Because I don't care how good you are. What did they used to say about uh, Drake? Yeah, if, you, if you can't spot the fish. He was the eighth best player in the world, but he would always play against the seven ones that were better. Um if you're not good at game selection, if you just always sit down the first seat that's offered to you and the one game that's going and they're really good, tight, aggressive players or really, uh, you know, loose, aggressive players and they, they eat you for lunch because they're better, you're not going to win money, at least not for a long while. And so I really stress how to size up a game and to see whether it's populated by people that you're likely to win money against. And then I talk about seat selection, where to sit. And then the next step to me is evaluating your hand relative to other people and uh, how it stacks up. And then I talk about position, teaching people the value of late position and how early position has certain strengths, but primarily weaknesses and why you have to be more selective with your hands and then sizing up other players and then other things. But that be the relative order. How about you? I know that, Andrew, you're teaching often. I mean, you tutored my friend David Clutchman, uh, who I think has mastered a lot of tournament situations because of your help, but he was also very good before. How do you rank the things that you need to teach a player uh, when you're teaching them how to win? Um, I will say, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that you mentioned is is really important, um, quite often more important, right? Like, I mean, game selection, for instance, is you know, more important than being able to play really well in the game that you are in, I think, or in, in many, especially for smaller stakes. Like if you're if you're trying to play a higher stakes game or you're playing a tournament, you know, you don't necessarily have a choice of right, which, right, which right, game right. you're going to be in. But yeah, I mean, to, to sit in a bad one two game is a crime. I mean, <laughs> there's in, in a casino that might have eight games going like you should, you know, you should certainly be actively game selecting. And that's going to make a bigger difference than the 
than most, you know, assuming you can eliminate the, the you know, absolute most low-hanging fruit. Um, the thing I really try to focus on with people is thought process, you know, is, is how should you be thinking about the situations that you're in? You know, my objective, even, and I do sometimes do like database review kind of stuff for people if they're playing online where I can look over like the last 50,000 hands they played and say like, oh, it looks like you're maybe raising too many hands from the cutoff or something. But none of those numbers by themselves really tell me what you need to do differently, nor is it that helpful for me to just say like, oh, you're at 25%, you should be at 23%. Like that's not a super, certainly, I mean, with pre-flop, you kind of can just give someone a chart but certainly when it comes to like, oh, you're seabatting too much, like seabat a little bit less. Okay, like in what situations? Which hand should I be checking? Like the problem might just be that you're seeing the flop with too many hands and then you end up with too high of a seabatting frequency because you have too many bad hands. Like the, the mistake might even be on an earlier street. So I'm really trying to get people to, you know, stop. And a lot of people have ingrained habits, right? You know, things they've been doing for a long time and they don't necessarily have a reason why they're doing them other than just, I don't know, it seems right, I've always done this. So you're trying to get people to take a step back and say, okay, really understand like where is the value coming from in doing this thing? what other option could there be um yeah. you know the, the yeah. thinking thinking poker is it's not just a uh, a name like that really is the goal is to get people to be more thoughtful about their decision making process yes well this is very interesting andrew because and it relates back weirdly i admit to what my wife does for a living my wife as i mentioned is an alexander teacher and she trains people to discard their habitual responses to situations and replace them by a more thoughtful uh, method of doing whatever they do based on the situation they're in. And so what she is doing over movement, you are suggesting needs to be done as a priority when playing poker, which I wrote an article for her journal, the Alexander Journal, on the Alexander technique and poker. Because to me, just as you said, Andrew, expert poker play requires that you learn how to think about each situation you're in and apply the action that is most appropriate based on your read of that situation and that you not act habitually. That, and so I see a connection, although I admit it's somewhat tortured and somewhat weird, between what my wife does for a living and what I do as a serious hobby or as a second job and what you do for a living, which is play poker. Do you see the connection? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Good. Well, I'll sign you up for some Alexander lessons in Tokyo. <laughs> you we'll actually you, you got my you got my attention with that. I'm, I'm curious. If you want, sometime you should Google the Alexander technique and poker. And you'll find two things. One is the article that I wrote, and the other is a podcast uh, that was created by an Alexander teacher who who interviewed me about what I'm talking about. And I went on at even more ridiculous lengths uh, to fill a whole half hour interview about the two concepts. <laughs> the um, the other thing that occurred to me, and this is also not something that, that I do a lot of work on personally, and I'm, I'm curious, I imagine it is something that you at least touch on in the book, is the kind of like, I mean, mental game is, is such a broad topic, but I, I like the way that Tommy Angelo puts it, or the idea of sort of lopping off C game, the idea of um, trying to, like, right. like, there's right. one skill which is just you know, having a very good A game, and then there's a totally separate skill of you know being able to play your A game, and I think that is an element of, of game selection, is not, you know, where should I sit, but also when should I sit, and when should I get up? 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. What what I think of and the uh, the, the quick uh, story that I tell is one of my favorite movies is Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman. Do you know that movie? I've, I've seen it, although it's been 20 plus years. Well, no, it it's, exists. it's Never a great seen movie. There is a poker scene in it, which is where Cool Hand Luke gets his nickname. Oh, sometimes nothing's a pretty cool hand. That's right. Exactly right. But there's a better scene or there's another scene that addresses the idea of what you just said, which is getting ready to play your A game. And it's a scene where the guy who runs this chain gang, runs this uh, prison, um, and he's a famous character actor whose name escapes me. He gets up in front of the prisoners, including Paul Newman's character, Luke, and he says with a, a thick, obviously artificial Southern drawl, he says, man, you're going to learn one thing here in this prison. You're going to learn to get your mind right. You're going to get your mind right or we're going to beat it into you quite literally like that. So and I do write about getting your mind right to play winning poker, which is to, you know, get rid of all the excuses you have. And I talk about wonderful excuses that people have for losing and to bring your eight. Right. I mean, it's an article I wrote. I don't know if you ever read it, but there are so many wonderful excuses I had had to uh, enumerate them all, why people say, they, oh, the game was too small, I was bored, or the game was too big, I was playing over my head, or I was drunk, or you just lie and you say you won when you didn't win. So anyway, uh, you're right. you got to play your A game, and, and Tommy, who's one of my favorite guys in the poker world, uh, that article that he wrote, and I think he put it in one of his books about playing your A game, he's absolutely right. You got to jettison that C game and never allow it to interfere with uh, with your ability to win. You know, I, I think that's the sort of thing that's you know it's easy for people to accept accept academically, but I think especially for a recreational poker audience, it's not so easy. I mean, I guess actually for you, I mean, I could imagine you've you've gone to all this effort. This is you know you, you've uh, you're in Tokyo and you've gone to all this effort to find a, a game, and you get there and just something really tilting happens to you the first ten minutes that you're playing. You know, you're not really going to get up and leave, are you? Well, I'll tell you what I would do. I would leave the game. I wouldn't stay at the table. I'd get up. This didn't happen to me, but it has happened in other settings that were not quite as dramatic. I wasn't away from home, 14-hour flight away. But I remember I drove down. It's about a two-hour drive from Boston to Foxwoods, an hour and a half if you speed. And uh, one of the first times I went down there, I got down there and I, I used to go in the middle of the night when my wife and kids were sleeping and I don't sleep very well. And I got up at like one in the morning. I drove down there, got there about one thirty to I mean, two thirty or, or three o'clock on a Saturday. And after about a half an hour, I realized I was really tired and I my God, I, you know, there's a habit when you're sitting at the poker table. I don't know if you find it, that when you're really tired, you just are in a zone and you play really mechanically and you just kind of wait for a hand and you don't think about much else and you're waiting for those big cards and you're waiting and you wait. And I did have the presence of mind to stand up and walk away. And eventually I came back to the table, got my chips and I just left. 
Uh, it didn't happen to me in Tokyo because it turned out everything went well. But in Okinawa, um, after about this may be why they didn't invite me back. After about <laughs> two and a half hours, I was up a couple of hundred bucks, a few like thirty thousand yen, and I realized that the bad players had left. And I said, I know I've only been here three hours. I know I'm only, I'm in Okinawa. This is an experience I'm never going to have again if I go home. But you know what? I got no reason to stay. These other guys, they're not quite sharks, but they're at least as good as I am. They're playing on their home turf. I'm going to leave. So I cashed out after three hours, and they kind of half expected me to stay, I think, the whole night until six or seven in the morning. And I left. So you're right. Again, you've got to have the discipline if you notice that either you or your game has gone south to say, you know what, there's always going to be another poker game. Maybe not this poker game, but there'll be another poker game. And uh, don't be ashamed or afraid or uh, reluctant to leave if you think that's the best thing to do. So, yeah, that's a major part of strategy. Uh, I've gone to games. I don't know if you've ever done this. I've gone to games. And, again, this is Foxwoods, only a couple hours from my house. Arrived and without playing a hand, after looking around at what's available, said, you know what, I'm going home. And maybe I'd hang out for half an hour or an hour to see if the conditions change. But I've done that, uh, much to my partners being pissed off. Uh, I left him down there, and I went home, and he ended up taking a bus home because I didn't want to wait around seven hours for him to finish his session. I said, Jim, I'm sorry, man. Uh, you can come home with me now, I, but I, I'm not going to stick around for more than an hour or maybe two uh, if you want. He said, no, 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 I'm here for the duration. So I ended up leaving and leaving him down there. Has that ever I, happened I, to you? I, Have you ever gone to a place, found a game, but not found it to your satisfaction and gone home? I've, I mean, in very strange edge cases, but I've, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I think I've done this actually too much in, in my career, but um, I think that's why it's useful to know a lot of games. And honestly, I'm surprised that the author of winning seven card stud uh, when who, who is not, you know, sort of a high stakes person would ever be at Foxwoods and not be able to beat the snot out of a one to five game. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> the one, are you kidding man? The one to five games there are so heavily rates in comparison to the size of the pot sometimes that's often the case with really small stakes games. No, man, I, I have, in fact, before I started playing Hold'em and I realize you're just ribbing me, but the one to three and one to five games there, there are games there often where the senior citizens who populate them, and I'm usually the youngest guy and I'm 63, right? Uh, they are there and they will uh, put up the 50 cent ante and there will be maybe another $5 in the pot before it's awarded to somebody at the showdown at the end. So with a rake now at 5 bucks, 10% to $5, those games are often the toughest games to be in the house. <laughs> and, and the 2040 game, which is really where I used to play for whatever reason, and it may be my weakness as a player, I found... Often those games are just too aggressive 
for me to enjoy uh, players that are too aggressive. Maybe they're just better stud players. I don't know. But I the swings, you know, maybe if I earned half of a small blind profit over the course of three years, that would be what I would be making. And so not small blind, half of the small bet. So it's a 20-40 game. If I could make 10 bucks an hour profit over three years, I was that was about my record. And I said, it's not worth it. I've got to sit here and risk a couple of grand and maybe I'm winning a little bit on average. But I found that not beatable, that those guys had played every day and I'd come down once a month. They ate me for lunch and I admitted it and uh, I could beat the other guys, but it was not enough of the other guys to make it very profitable for me. So good for you for knowing that there's a lot of stud, but those low minute games, man, they, I, oh, I found them horrible. Even though I, I played at them my first two years when I was there. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't put a lot, a lot of hours into them in a while, but you know, I'd rather play, I'd rather play one to five than go home. And I think I would stand to make money at the table. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a rake. I'm a rake aware person, but um. When was the last time you played in a one to five game at Foxwoods? Uh, probably five years ago. Okay, well, even ten years ago, I noticed that when No Limit took off and it dipped for a while because the structure was horrible, you could only buy in for a hundred. Then they. You, you could wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You could buy in for 139. You could buy in for 40 to 100. So you do buy in for 40 and then, then tip a dollar and then add on 100. Buy in another 40. That's right. That's true. <laughs> I was using shorthand. You could get your 139 bucks. But when they had that structure, it dipped a little. But then when they went to 300, gangbusters. And the new players, new to poker and bad, invariably entered the no limit hold'em game and not the stud game and the players that were left in the stud game were bad because none of those players were very good or they would have moved up to 510 or 2040 but they were awfully tight and there's in the last five years last 10 years even with few exceptions little money to be won and my God, I, I've played one to five occasionally. I have a buddy who plays it, and I would often sit down next to him. And I, you might win a little bit of money, but with a four or a five dollar rake and a dollar, or now is it two dollar jackpot drop? Oh, I would hate it. I'd hate going even if I won twelve dollars over an hour or two hour session. I'd much rather play uh, three hundred max one two game or the five hundred max two five no limit game. Much more profitable. Fair. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I that that I agree. Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly, certainly. Where do it's you play so now? Sorry. Before, before the COVID explosion, where did you typically play your live poker? The encore. The encore. Yeah. Do you yeah. think they're ever coming back? Uh, I haven't even. I've been so busy with the aforementioned things. I, I haven't even been following it. I would kind of guess yes. Uh, just from like casual observation of like what's there, I think this isn't like the Las Vegas Strip. I, I like the the marginal cost of the square foot. Like I agree that um, other things are more desirable for the casino than a poker room, but it doesn't follow that they can actually 
tear down the poker room. Like if they could tear down the poker room and replace it with well-traveled slot machines that are not taking traffic from the other slot machines in the casino, I'm sure they would do that. It's not clear to me that they can. And similarly for other games, um, like they have plenty of space. It's not exactly primo real estate the way it is in Las Vegas. So my guess is that event, like just sort of from econ 101 first principles, like eventually it will be worth their while to bring it back. But if I were wrong, I would not be at all surprised about it. Um, like at all. I tend to agree with you. I, I think the other thing that uh, people need to consider is before COVID, the area that exceeded expectations or that met the high expectations they had, the only area that did that was the poker room. And I understand poker is not a profit center. It's always, it's not quite a loss leader, but it's a small win leader. They hope to get people in to play poker and you bring your spouse or you go there with a bunch of guys or whatever, and that they'll play the other more profitable games. But in this case, they were so flat in everything else. And the poker room, which was, I thought, well-managed for the most part, they had some problems. They didn't have their safety deposit boxes. The tournaments were kind of uh, occasionally haphazardly run. But their poker room manager, Gary Hager, was the one of the best in the business. I don't know what happened to him. I imagine they laid him off and he's probably working somewhere else. And I think that they're going to bring it back because it was one of the few really positive parts of their casino that exceeded or equaled their high expectations before their launch. That would be my take. If it was a kind of a dead poker room beforehand and everything else was juiced up, maybe they'd keep it closed. But I don't see how they can afford to close the one shining part of this somewhat disappointing casino venture that they uh, that they spent so much money on. Yeah, makes sense to me. But also, like, if it, you know, if you come back in the show in three years, having written your next, you know, brilliant book, uh, <laughs> and you say, like, huh, no more poker in Boston. And I say, yeah, there's no more poker in Boston. Well, I'm taking care of a six-year-old. Um, I, I, I won't be surprised at all. So, that, yeah. yeah. And fortunately, there are many other poker options, especially if you're a longtime Boston resident and you know a lot of people. But just a little north in New Hampshire, tons of poker action, and to me, incorrectly opened up given the coronavirus and the possibility of spreading it. But there's tons of poker action up there, some very good rooms, uh, well-managed. And, uh, and I think Foxwoods will open its poker room again eventually, and Mohegan Sun eventually. And, uh, and there are tons of private games. So if the Encore never opens poker again, there's still lots of places to play in the greater Boston metro area. It's true. So on, on our previous topic, I actually have a, a story um, sort of about when I, I, I should have left um, without without playing, but having made a long drive, I, I did not. And it, it ties into uh, COVID. So this was in, um, I guess it would have been late January of this year. So it's kind of, I think before the general public was all that like COVID aware, like it was sort of, on the outside, but um, a, a few poker people have been talking about it, um, and, and my girlfriend is kind of on top of these things. So I was, I think, more conscious of it than a lot of uh, people were at that time. And um, I had driven down from, I'm in the Baltimore area, and I'd driven down to the National Harbor Casino. Oh, what a, yeah, that's a nice place. 
It is. Um, the, the, the drive, the traffic between <laughs> Baltimore and that casino is uh, kind of can or can be a nightmare. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, 45 minutes on a good day, but there are no good days. Um, and, you know, it's two hours <laughs> on, on a bad day. Um, and so I'd driven down there for a tournament and uh, I think it was like day two and I didn't start with very many chips. It was already, you know, like I drove down there, I played like a very little bit of the tournament. I'm eliminated from the tournament. Uh, I go down to see how the cash tables are. They're not really very good. Um, the only seat that's available, there's a seat in the 10-20 game. It's not very good. I take it anyway because I'm annoyed and I don't want to turn around and drive home. I'm sitting there in a game that it's you know, probably not a great idea for me to be playing in anyway, given that I'm sort of irritated. Um, and it's, and it's you know, there's not like soft, soft money in the game and then um the the player sitting next to me mentions that he's just gotten back from playing poker in macau and i was like all right well that's a good enough reason to leave and uh that was the last time <laughs> i played poker before uh, the casino shut down <laughs> <laughs> so you presume that by having just come back from playing poker in macau he must be a pretty good player Oh, no, uh, that that he. I mean, this was when it was still the Wuhan virus, right? I mean, this was when when China was sort of the um, the 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 main place that was experiencing uh, coronavirus troubles. Oh, 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 okay. So, I mean, I, I I sort of already had in my head that I should quit. I was kind of like, I just needed a little like, you know, sign from I God see. or whatever. And then you know that was I was like, okay, that, I probably shouldn't have been here anyway, and that's just one more strike. Right. So the game was bad. The player next to you potentially was carrying a deadly virus and you decided to call it quits. I didn't think it was terribly likely. It was just, you know, I, I, I it was just the nudge that I needed to to make the right decision. Yes, I agree. I, are any of those rooms open now? Have, uh, is Maryland Live open? Is uh, the Maryland Live is open? Uh, Maryland Live is. I'm pretty sure the horseshoe is. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be going. Um I'm not sure about National Harbor. I haven't heard. I mean, I imagine if the other Maryland ones are, it probably is, but I actually don't know that for a fact. And you're you're not playing live at all. No, I um, no, I'm not. Well, I got to tell you one quick story of the only live game that I would play, and in fact, uh, I gave up an invitation to it tonight. But I think you will agree with me that I made the right choice. I have a group of friends who uh, play poker regularly about three times a month, like every couple of weeks. And I generally don't play with them because they play high school stakes. And they're very nice guys, all, I wouldn't say super rich, but professional, relatively wealthy. But they absolutely refuse to play for any stakes larger than a dollar, larger than one dollar. But they're very nice guys. Well, they went on hiatus when the coronavirus hit. And then they figured out how to play online. And they played a little online. And then they decided to have a live game. But here is the requirement. You have to wear a face shield. They only play outside. They play around the perimeter of two banquet tables. So you can't really deal the cards. You have to deal them in front of you, and then you pass the hands to each other. You have to use hand sanitizer between every hand. And uh, three of two of them are epidemiologists. One is the <laughs> head of the department at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital. So I figure if they say it's safe to play outside with shields and hand sanitizer, who am I? 
to argue with them. They're very serious uh, guys. So we played, I was, I played with them. They invite me as a substitute. I played six players uh, three weeks ago, quarter 50 cent dollar dealer's choice. Every crazy, wild, absurd game you played in high school. And I did that for three hours. So that was the only exception. Other than that, I wouldn't play live with anybody. Yeah, it sounds like a safe enough situation. I'm not sure it sounds worth the hassle, but. <laughs> well, it was worth it just for the story, brother. Yes, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, any note you, I mean, but we'll, we'll plug the book one more time, but um, are there other uh, books, movies, I guess we mentioned Cool Hand Luke. I mean, it doesn't have to be poker related. Like, what do you, what, what, what would you encourage people to, to take in? Midnight Diner, what else? Oh, as far as pop culture? Yeah, just um, whatever, whatever you like. I, you know, I have been so hunkered down that aside from reading murder mysteries, uh, and I read um, a guy named Harlan, Harlan Coben, C-O-B-E-N, I've been thinking about writing a novel i have not ever written any nonfiction. i write my poker columns for cards chat do you know about cards chat yes and i believe you meant to say you've not written any fiction yes say that again you, you meant to say you've not written any fiction right? i have you've, not written any fiction nonfiction. right okay but did i say i've not written any nonfiction? i've not written yeah. any fiction i've okay. written nonfiction, but i have been toying with the idea of doing some fiction writing i think there is a, a a world of books to be written about a poker player who gets involved in uh detecting uh plots uh, murder and the like and i i think you could design a poker playing sleuth that would be very interesting and so I, i'm toying with that but i haven't i do have a couple of old ones pete houtman do you know his stuff peter houtman no he wrote a whole series of books, including Ring Game and, uh, let's see, let me just quickly, I'm checking my poker library. Um, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. He wrote The Prop, about a proposition player, Ring Game, Drawing Dead, and No Limit, and Short Money, uh, and The Mortal Nuts. Pete Houtman, H-A-U-T as in Tom, M-A-N. I recommend that. Um, there's also a series of books uh, by a guy named Ted Thackeray. Ted Thackeray was a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He created a character called Preacher, and he has some novels about this guy who travels. He's a road gambler, plays poker all over the country, and he's like also a minister on the side. Uh, and it's they're wonderful adventures. I recommend those books. So Ted Thackeray, Pete Houtman, and who knows, maybe eventually Ashley Adams. But for now, you got to settle for my nonfiction, winning poker in 30 minutes a day. Have well, you Lord. read, um, there, there's, a, there's a new uh, murder mystery kind of poker related. Um, we had the author on somewhat recently, and you, you may know her. Um, Bluff is the name of the, uh, yeah, Bluff is the name of the book. And uh, Jane Hitchcock is the author. Do you know Jane? No, I don't know Jane and I don't know Bluff, but I've got my pen and my notebook and I'm writing it down now. Um, it, it won the uh, the Dashiell Hammett Award um, 
in the, this this most recent year. Um, and I will say Jane, is, I've not read the book yet myself, but uh, Jane is one of the most delightful staples of, of at least mid-Atlantic poker. Maybe she doesn't make her way up uh, quite so far north as where you are, but uh, she is absolutely beloved on the uh, the tournament poker circuit here in the, in the mid-Atlantic. Um, She's a she player? Is, she she is a she's a poker player. She is um, a, a woman of a certain age. Uh, does does not fit the your stereotype of of a typical even a typical female poker player. She's like a good deal older than uh, what you might stereotype. Um, like but, Barbara uh, Enright age. Um, yeah, in that neighborhood. Really? Wow. Has she written other stuff, or is this her first she, book? Yeah, she no, she she is a writer first, um, and and a poker player. I mean, she's, she's a very avid poker player, but uh, I think writing is her is her first passion. She's written plays, she's written other other novels. Um, I believe this is the first one that where poker is really front and center. Wow, I've got to read it. And I, I hope you'll get a chance to um, to meet her. Actually, I'll send you the link to the, the interview that we did with her. I think her, her personality comes through pretty nicely in there, and, and she can explain the book, I'm sure, better than um, better than I can. But she she is a delight, and I imagine the book is quite good. I have not read it myself yet. Well, that's terrific. I She's from the Baltimore, D.C. area? Yeah, she lives in D.C. I believe she's from New York originally. Jane Hitchcock. I'll have to look her up, and I'm eager to get the interview from you. That would be terrific. I When... COVID is done, and who knows, maybe even before, I will be visiting that area because my daughter lives in Tacoma Park with her husband and my granddaughter. And so I go, I used to go down there every few weeks for the weekend just to see her and, of course, play poker while I was down there. What's your home room? Do you play it? Is that Maryland Live? Where you Maryland, Maryland Live is where I play my stuff then, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that room better before they opened the National Harbor that siphoned off some players. But I oh, really sure. like, I really like Maryland Live. And I'm, you know, I'm just remembering now that I mean, you have your own uh, show. I don't, I don't want to presume too much, but I, I think once you listen to our interview with Jane, I, I think there's, uh, I, I think you'd likely enjoy having her on your show as well. Yeah, she'd be a great guest. Uh, sadly, I have not done an interview on House of Cards because I can't be in the studio with my producers and they don't travel. So they've been doing the show without me for many, many months. And I have not done an interview, my goodness, since um, my knee surgery in January. Um, I had a knee replacement. And so I am eager to get back to it, but I don't even know when I'll be back taping shows in the studio while the COVID virus is around, I may not do that because we don't do it on the phone the way you do. They they want to do it with a live mic. So it may be a while, but I will certainly recommend her to the show's producer that are still producing some shows down in Jersey where they're from. Okay, cool. Yeah, good. I have to run. Sure. Uh, we planned this for an hour, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, you're, you're good to go. Do you want to tell us quickly one more time uh, the name of the book and where people can you get bet. it? You know, the book is Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day by Ashley Adams, available on Amazon.com by D&B Publishing. You can go right to the site, uh, D&B Publishing.com, uh, And uh, it's available there. The book is designed to help people who love poker but are not yet winning players become winning players. So I'm Happy for any sales, happy for any emails. If people want to send me emails about interesting poker stories that they want to talk about 
uh, Asha34, A-S-H-A-34 at AOL.com. I collect stories about poker. And when we're traveling again, I travel all over the country and playing home games and casinos everywhere. So if you have a poker game, and uh, I mean, this is only going to be valid once we have a, uh, some kind of a vaccine. I love traveling to home games anywhere in the United States. In fact, anywhere in the world. I'm going to be retired probably in a few years. And I'm eager to spend my retirement doing few things other than traveling around the world playing poker in weird places. So nice being on your show. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you again. It's been great. Hopefully not the last time. Oh, unless I die or your show (laughs) dies, it won't be the last time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will root against both. (laughs) Very good. I wish you well. All right, take care. Have a good evening. guys. Yep, bye-bye. of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't